0: Having a a very limited kitchen, when you're creating the dishes, like you say, there always has to be this mindset, okay, I know I can do something that's very technically sound and crazy, but like, do I know the rest of my staff can be able to execute that same kind of vision and consistently for, you know, days on end or years on end, however it may be, whatever this dish, the life of this dish may be, I'm very intentional about When we're creating dishes, you know, they need to be something that can be almost reheated and kind of executed quickly. And the biggest thing I think we focus on is when we're garnishing our dishes because, you know, the garnishing and all that can really take a dish that looks okay to like make it something that's completely stunning. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel.
1: Welcome to another episode of Flavors Unknown, the podcast where we explore the inspiring stories of famous and emerging chefs redefining the culinary industry. I am your host, Emmanuel La Roche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, or mixologists from around the country. And today, I have the great pleasure to be in conversation with the talented chef Edgar Rico, the man behind the phenomenon that is Nixta Tech in Austin, Texas. Edgar Rico joins us to explore the questions about his life culinary journey and the ripple effect of his restaurant success in the community. We will learn about the significance of nixtamelized corn in Mexican cuisine, the uniqueness of nixtas tortillas, and the influences that led to the creation of the menu that winning the hearts of Austin food lovers. We'll also get to discuss and the impact of winning a James Beard Award as Best Emerging Chef. Edgar will also walk us through his recent trip to Iran and how travel becomes a source of inspiration for a future restaurant project. Join us as we delve into Edgar's world, discover his creative process, and get an insider's view on balancing creativity and execution within the constraints of a 100 square feet kitchen. Hi, Chef. How are you?
0: Howdy, Emmanuel. How are you doing, boss?
1: I am doing very well. Thank you. It's good to see you again.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm stoked to be here again. Uh, we reunite after a few years of, uh, yeah. you know, I think last we saw each other, 2021.
1: Uh, 2021 think- were the uh, recording of the panel discussion we did with uh, you, uh, with Rick Lopez and and Andre Natera, yeah. and then I saw you, I think I came once or twice in between, mm-hmm. you know, at the restaurant. So I saw you, I remember, you know, outside, yeah. you our know, restaurant once. I'm, I'm lucky to come to Austin, you know, often, so... It's always one spot for me to, you know, to come to. (laughs) But uh, big things happened to you in between the panel discussion we had and our conversation today. So I'm curious about how you reacted. You know, the restaurant as well, people working with you on two things: is you got the winning like James Beard Award as the best emerging chef in 2022. And then as well, you made like the you were including the list of the 100 most influential people at Time. So Time magazine. So that was like, like, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. To say the least, things have definitely changed since the last time we spoke to each other. You know, winning the James Beard Award was, you know, something I in my wildest dreams could would have never thought that we would have won. You know, it. Also, just goes out to you know the talent pool that was nominated with me as well. There were some very, very impressive chefs from like Angel Baratu from D.C., Sergey mambaya out in New Orleans, Crystal Wapape in Oakland, and you know everyone else in between. Like there were so many people with just a great talent pool of people that I like looked up to, and you know being there that night amongst. So many chefs that I admired and so many chefs that I looked up to as a kid. Like it was this synergy of energy that I couldn't believe. And in my wildest dreams, I would have never thought, you know, we would have walked away with the James Beard Award, especially this little restaurant that we created, it was this was such a scrappy restaurant that was never meant to be anything more than just like a really awesome neighborhood spot, um, and it kind of ballooned into something in our wildest dreams we would have never. I mean, obviously, thought. I'm going to say something which is very
1: like you know a reduced way of looking at it and so on, but it's like tacos that bring you to uh, you know James
0: Beard. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, you know, I mean. For sure. To have yeah. been able, you know, to represent Mexican culture and, you know, to be able to have, you know, tacos of all things, that that is, you know, that's what we do. We're at Taqueria, you know, here at Nixta. And, you know, to have that on the forefront and be involved in something like this, it's... A dream come true and every single day i kind of pinch myself and you know remind myself of the opportunity that has been given to me and i'm just really grateful for it and you know with it too i'm grateful for the community the team and the people that all surrounded us that made this happen because, you know, it's, it takes a village yeah. to make this happen. Absolutely. And I'm just really grateful for all the people around us that made this happen. And this is also, like, it's not just me, it's my wife, Sarah's. Also, she's the other partner in this restaurant and she's just as critical to this, you know, to making this happen as it was me in the kitchen as well. So, yeah. But I think it's, it's a great
1: example for uh, young, you know, cooks. I was at the... Johnson and Wales University in Providence Rhode Island linked to you know the book and, and doing a lecture to to the, the students and faculty and I was talking about you know all the different chefs that I interviewed and recently I did an interview with uh, chef Brad Kilgore from Miami and he was mentioning in a, a sentence that i kept because i think it's a great one that says chef is like a blue collar job but that can lead you to white collars op- white collar opportunities and i think that this is like exactly. you know, a, a great example yeah. you know with your story so i think that it gives a lot of hope you know obviously for people that are interested in this you know in this profession but at the same time you put a lot of work in between
0: yeah. I mean, it's not to say we didn't, you know, there was, you know, we opened up four months before the pandemic. So, you know, great time to have opened a restaurant, <laughs> as you can imagine. But, you know, we during that time, it I think it really was kind of a blessing in disguise in a sense, because it really helped us dial in our processes. It helped us dial in, you know, our masa as well. Like from if I look at the tortillas we were making on day one to what we're making now, it's it's a night and day difference. It's How it's is whole, it different? I mean, the grind that we're using now is definitely a lot more consistent. Um, also, too, with the masa and how we treat it now, I think, you know, you know, there's a lot of it to do with our director from of masa and fermentation, Andres Garza. He is just really talented in terms of being able to see masa as a catalyst for art, in a sense. You know, the tortillas that he makes are he'll use like three to four different kinds of masa in it and have it be like this tie-dye kind of tortilla. Or sometimes it's like these little circles that lead into a smaller circle. And it's just like this beautiful art piece. And, you know, through him, also Sara, she's our, our CDC here at Nixta. She's been with us since the day we opened. And, you know, she started off as a line cook and worked her way up to now being a CDC. She You know, she's originally from Guanajuato, Mexico. She grew up with corn being part of her life every day. She used to sell tortillas growing up as, you know, as, in her early 20s and teens as a way just to be able to put some food on the table and so she really like knows eats and breeds masa so like i say it's like it's a village that yeah, made all village, of this yeah. happen mm-hmm. and i'm just really grateful for the team around us that you know constantly you know question things as as i tell everyone here like you know don't don't just agree with anything I'm saying. Like, you know, if you ha- if you really believe that there's a better way or better operations for this, let's do it. Like, I'm never set in my ways where I'm like, this is the only way we can do it and, like, we can never change because, you know, I feel like that limits creativity in a lot of senses. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you limit creativity, I feel like, you know, it's just not a fun place to work at. So I have really, you know, definitely push a lot of our cooks hopefully to – get them to create dishes on our menu. Like we have a daily special every day. So Mm -hmm. I always tell them that's a good opportunity for you. If you want to test out something like this is your, you know, this is your opportunity to do something that could maybe potentially be on the menu one day. So yeah, it's, I think this kitchen is definitely like a creative, you know, breeding ground for cooks, for our cooks here to have a lot of fun and to be able to, you know, hopefully express themselves and identify, a little bit better of who they are as a cook because I think you know when you're becoming when going from being a cook to a chef there there has to be this like kind of next step that you take but with that too you also have to kind of find your language of like what what you are in terms of food like who you're about what's your story behind it and I think all of that you know kind of plays into when you're creating dishes and like you know you taste it you really taste something that I feel like that there's a story behind and there's like some love behind that too like people really taste that so
1: so talking about um you know story so let's go back to your story so are you are originally from california correct if i remember yeah LA? la or
0: um so yeah i was born in west covina california which is in uh in the san gabriel valley in uh, los angeles home to some of the best chinese food in the country okay i uh, anyone fight me on that because sgv <laughs> definitely has the okay. best you will find some of the best chinese you heard there. you yes, know you heard.
1: Said. what do you remember when you close your eyes when you were a kid you know like thinking about like the taste and the smells that reminds you of that time
0: so for myself being there i was born there but then uh, my family actually relocated up to the central valley okay. uh in a little town called visalia and being in Visalia, California, if you don't know, it's in the middle of the Central Valley. And then the Central Valley is home to the majority of the agri- huge agricultural produce that comes out of California. Like mm-hmm. we're talking all the big industrial farms and small farms and everything else in between grows in that Central Valley. So there are tons of farms in every which way direction you look for hundreds of miles. If you're driving along the Central Valley, there's nothing but farms. So with that, too, there's got to be people that work those farms. And who works farms most of the days? Mexican people. Um, Mexican people, you know, there's a big community of farm laborers that are there in the Central Valley. So growing up, there was these great pockets of, you know, with migration trends, you know, usually people, they like to migrate where they feel like they have a community of people that are, you know, local to them where they can support each other, each other yeah. for sure. So, you know, there was this hubs of, like, com- Oaxacan communities, there was these hubs of people from Veracruz, these hubs from people from Mexico City and everything else in between, all represented in that Central Valley. So, I was very fortunate enough to have, like, a lot of great Mexican food growing up in my house or even going to restaurants all around me of just like having just this incredible Mexican you know food at my you know at whatever corner pocket of the valley you wanted to go to you could experience that I I think also though too as a kid I felt like you know a little I kind of wanted to step away from it as well because you know you get kind of teased as a kid also too of like oh man like all you got is like, I got Lunchables over here and I'm over here with like sopa de fideo and like <laughs> rice and beans with weenies yeah. in it as lunch. So I, as myself, kind of, as a little kid was kind of wanting to stray away To from assimilate, that. yeah. Yeah, you want to assimilate, you know? You're like, man, like this is something for our home. Like, I don't want to eat this, you know? In front of my friends. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, as I got older and, you know, you appreciate your culture a lot more and you, I know there would be times when I was away I was like missing, like, you know, my mom's like rajas con, con queso, rajas pav- poblano, just little dishes like that that, like, you know, your you know, mom's touch just kind of has that you can't really find anywhere else. Like, mm-hmm. There's nothing like a home cooked meal, especially when you're away for a while. Like, nothing. So, like- when
1: did you get the bug of, you know, cooking and this is something that you wanted to get your
0: out <laughs> At a life very work. young age, you know, as early on as like, seven or eight years old i was very intrigued uh, i remember watching pbs watching you know julia Child, watching east meets west with ming west with ming Tsai, watching rick Bayless, martin yang watching him on tv and i was just so fascinated because it was like man like you know a guy like martin yang is from china and he's like able to share his culture and like you're able to see that dish that he's making from who knows like from Szechuan or wherever it may be, whatever part of China he was kind of highlighting. And I really was so fascinated by that, that, you know, food was this kind of like, it was essentially like conversation. It was culture that you could share through a meal. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of loved that. And I think probably as early on as like nine or 10 years old, I was always like helping my mom in the kitchen and kind of slowly having that, you know, effect. And then, Food Network came along in the like early, late 90s. And then that really changed kind of my, because then I got to see a whole range of like food at 24 hours a day. You know, you could have food from every part. So that kind of even drew my fascination even more. So very early on, I was very, very curious about cooking. And it always, you know, kind of continued on through middle school and high school. And uh, I think it was my last year of high school, like, I decided to go get a job in a kitchen because i was like oh well, i need to start paying my own bills like why not so uh, there was a, a restaurant that opened uh, across the street from my house it was a steakhouse mm-hmm. and it was easily accessible i could walk to it and i was like great like this is a great first job and they started me off as a as a prep cook and i quickly advanced on to be a line cook and then after graduating high school becoming a manager and all with under like a year and a half. And I was like an 18-year-old kid being a manager and managing like 30, 40-year-old men who did not like me talking to them. So it was this weird power struggle that I kind of had with myself. But my kitchen manager, like the general manager of the restaurant, he actually had gone to the Culinary Institute of America. And he had told me, he's like, man, like kid, you got... something with you. You clearly enjoy cooking a lot. Like you need, you need to go kind of like hone your skills somewhere where you should go to a culinary school. He's like, I suggest if you want, like look into this school, like people consider it like the Harvard of culinary schools and like for serious cooks, like kind of yourself, he's like, I think it'd be a good fit for you. At first I didn't want to apply to CIA actually in New York because I thought it was too far. And There was actually one in Greystone at Napa Valley. I had applied for it, had gotten accepted, but randomly after my acceptance letter, the school in New York called me and they were like, hey, we have really low uh, enrollment this summer. We only have like, I don't know, like eight or nine people in this class. Like it's a very kind of slow, you know, thing. Would you potentially be interested to moving to New York in two weeks, but we will take off like, I think it was like 15 or $20,000 off my tuition. And I was like, this is a no-brainer. Well, this is going to be a whole new life experience. Like, why not? Let's go. Let's move sure. to New York. Oh, wow. So, yeah. told my job. I was like, sorry, guys. Uh, I got to put my two weeks in. I'm going going to school. And, yeah, started my journey off in New York uh, at the Culinary Institute of America. And,
1: Hyde Park. Yeah, yeah,
0: in Hyde Park. And, uh,
1: How was it? How was that? So, you it know, was two years, four years?
0: I, I did the associates program. Okay. Yeah. So, it was, I mean, the moment you walk into Roth Hall, it... I mean, man, it's it just feels like you are in this like elevated cooking space, like the mentality there is like, you know, everyone there is like, I think, very serious chefs or if they don't become chefs, they'll become some kind of like, you know, dynamic in food in some way, shape or form, whether they're writers, whether they're recipe testers private chefs, whatever it may be, like anyone that I graduated with or went to school with, like to see where all of us are at in, in our lives now with, you know, the power the CIA had. It's it's impressive. I Great networking, too. Uh, what's you know? up? Great networking. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. No, yeah, for sure. Great networking opportunities. And then, you know, the, the school also, too, you know, provided you with A very very good foundation to like be able to go to any kitchen around the world if you wanted to to walk in and you know you would at least have the skills to at least get you to what you needed to do on a basic level but you know every kitchen kind of works different as you kind of find out once you get into school but you know learning having that foundation that I had at CIA and like in terms of also how running how to learn how to run a business I mean because they don't just teach you like the cooking side Mm -hmm. like they give you like great introspective on, like, wines. Like, there's a whole course that you take on wines for a whole semester. And after graduating, you get, like, a almost the equivalent of, like, a level one sommelier, you know, leaving that class. So, like, you know, that's something anyone as a chef, I recommend you do in some way, shape, or form if you want to, you know. Because wine, I feel like, is just as important. And, you know, pairs. it's a perfect marriage of food and wine together. And, you know, when you know how to pair things and you know, you know, what where wine is from because you can look at a a, you know from france in particular you look at a label and you're like where Where what yeah and you know so what grape is it yeah exactly so you know having that insight and knowing those like small you know details really helped my career a lot and you know shout out to cia because you know they definitely set me up for success in my future very
1: good and then you went to cooking back to LA before coming here, correct?
0: Mhm. So, yeah, after graduating CIA, I had done actually an externship in between with Tom Colicchio mm-hmm. at his restaurant Craft in Los Angeles, and that the chef that was there his name was Anthony Zappola. He had left because he was going to go open up his own project. And in between that time, he was just kind of helping some friends open up a restaurant. And little did I know, I knocked on the back door of these two chefs that I really wanted to work for. Their names were John and Benny. Those two guys are two dudes that I had looked up to being in culinary school. I remember eating at their first restaurant that they opened. I don't know if you've ever been to Animal in Los Angeles. So Animal was their first beast first restaurant that they opened. It's a nose to tail kind of cooking restaurant where they focus on offal, but they do it with a very American twist that makes it very approachable. Like one of their like signature dishes was their like pigtails that were tossed in like buffalo sauce with uh, a little fried egg and scallions over the top or like their, their foie gras, foie gras biscuit, which was just like seared foie gras with a a nice like southern biscuit with uh, maple sausage gravy (laughs) and uh, scallions and chives over the top. It's a very decadent restaurant. And I remember as I was externing at Kraft, they had just opened and that used to be like the the chef's spot, the chef late night spot to go Mm -hmm. to because they were open till two in the morning. So they definitely catered to industry people. And it used to be like a who's who of industry people walking in there after late night shifts at Craft. That would be where like the industry went because it was like affordable, you know, it was opal, you know, obviously isn't the most expensive thing to thing. And I really feel like it's true cooking to be able to execute, you know, the bits and pieces that no one else wants to use. So I was very inspired by that, you know, by them and wanted to get a job with them at their restaurant Animal. But unfortunately, they were pretty much fully booked in their kitchen. And, but they had just opened up uh, a seafood restaurant not too far from where they were at called Son of a Gun. And they told me, they like, you should go check it out over there. I think they actually do need some help from talking to their, one of their kitchen managers. So walked into the kitchen and there was my old chef, Tony Zapola. He was working the line. <laughs> and I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, "What are you doing here?" And uh, we just kind of had this moment and I told him I was like I'm looking for a job and he recommended me instantly nice. and then the next when day the stars are alive, huh? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it kind of kind of worked out that way, really nice. So, yeah, ended up getting a job with them at their new seafood spot and for me I was it was kind of good cuz I was so foreign to seafood i knew nothing really too much about seafood so like having a restaurant where you know we were getting like fresh oysters or like fresh uni you're getting fresh scallops learning how to break down like you know those pieces learning how to break down lobster like for our lobster rolls and everything else in between it was just this complete eye-opener for me that i'm really grateful for the restaurant ended up doing tremendously well they won we won best new restaurant from GQ from Food and Wine that year and just seeing you know being around a culture of a kitchen like that out of school was very like good for myself to see you know how how do you build culture in a kitchen from mm-hmm. the ground up and how do you I you know how are you able to execute daily to have a consistent product on a daily basis that like hits like this and also just you know how to like just have a really good team around you to that you know can you know execute your vision and for them they were juggling two restaurants at the time and you know just seeing that like it definitely you know inspired me to you know be able to go off and do it on my own one day because i saw like kind of how scrappy they were to be able to make you know make it all happen and You know i think the biggest thing from learning from them was you know i think don't you know whatever your vision is don't don't let it stray away like don't let anyone talk to you about what they think it should be because at the end of the day you got to be happy with whatever you're putting out because if it's got your name on it you know it's got to be representative of who you are
1: so what made you come to austin and consider austin to be like the place where you know you continue your career
0: yeah so through working at son of a gun actually there were my first kind of two sous chefs gray nona's and michael Fotage. they had actually opened up a restaurant down here called olame yep and the two of them left son of a gun and they were telling me they're like yeah i remember talking with michael specifically because he he was from texas i think he grew up in dallas or like dallas area and i remember him telling me he was like man like i'm telling you austin's the next big place it's going to be the next big boom town i can i can already see it and i had and never been right. to austin <laughs> yeah and every sense of the way he was right i was i didn't see it i, I had been to austin as when I was younger in my early 2000s, and I remember it being this small little town, and I was like, what? Like This town in the middle of Texas? It's like a desert down there. Like, what, how is this guy? Like, what is this guy seeing that I'm not seeing? Like, I don't know. But I remember end of 20, or like, yeah, like the beginning of like 2016, I was getting ready to leave LA, and I knew I wanted to open up a new a restaurant didn't know how, but came out here to Austin uh, on a weekend trip, on a week trip uh, with my dad after road tripping, and it just made sense. Austin, the taco culture was here. I wanted to open up a taqueria. I knew that for sure. Mm-hmm. And But we noticed at the moment and time, at the end of 2017, or end of 2016, there was no place doing nixtamalization. So... For me, I was like, all right, there's an opportunity right there. You want to do nixon lice corn. There you go. There's no one doing, you know, nixon Lice tortillas. And like the tacos that were here at that time, it was kind of, you know, breakfast tacos were on the forefront. I think, you know, breakfast tacos is definitely the culture of sure. what Austin is. and Absolutely. But, you know, I saw My first things
1: in the morning after coffee is a <laughs> breakfast taco when I'm in Austin. And it's funny because Michael Fodigier, in fact, is the first person that, Got me like, you know, with as well, Fiori Tedesco, both of them. That were my first connection here. With, no kidding. Uh, With Austin. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Huh. So, yeah, yeah. Great, great guys. But yeah, breakfast tacos is, you know. So you're talking about next elementization. And I don't want you to repeat the story because you told like a great story in the panel discussion. And if the people want to listen to it, you know, please go back to the panel discussion with you and uh, with Rick Lopez and, and Andre Natera. That story of where you were back in Mexico and then your stop, you know, with this old with woman, uncle. you know, yeah. that was you know doing like the the mesa, getting like, you know, on the uh, mesa on the side of the road, and you know, and so on, and the discovery and learning, you know, staying there and learning. I think it's a beautiful story sure. that you you have you have told. But is it there that came this idea of externalization that should be? Your path, what you wanted to do, if you open and you know a taco place, do you have all? Do you have already that idea before? About I think that? I
0: knew, yeah. Like I think from coming here, um, I knew I wanted to do a taco place, but I wasn't sure how or what kind of taco place. I knew I wanted it to be something that was representative of me, and I, so I know I didn't want to just do like carne salada tacos with guacamole on it. Like you know, I I wanted to be able to kind of push the forefront of what tacos could be and also having it not be just like meat focused like what everyone thinks it should be so yeah but i think from being here and seeing you know what was being offered in terms of you know masa you could go to la if you want and find plenty of places that do that sell you nixon corn masa but there's really only one place here that sells it and the corn they use isn't the greatest and I had used the masa that they use and I wasn't a big fan. So, yeah, I think after being in Mexico and seeing, you know, the process and how how everything went, I was like, yeah, we need to be I need to find out a way how to be able to make it happen here in Austin and that led to, you know, a whole new thing of challenges that, you know, arose from it, but I think we made it. I think we made it happen. You know. So,
1: how did your like your culinary background influence the menu here in uh, in Korea? Uh,
0: so, you know, from working with the chefs that I had worked with in the past, you know, John and Vinny were definitely a big influence. Of seeing like how they kind of operate. You know, with them, they were the first chefs that I ever saw that were, you know using going to the market every single weekend, like twice a week, they would go down to the market. They would drive, get their trucks and just you would go to different farmers and just like what well, whatever was in season at its mm-hmm. height and at its best is what what would be on the menu for that week. And they would kind of throw their own spin on things that made dishes that were very familiar, but still like pushing the boundaries. So I always kind of wanted that same kind of, like, style where I wanted something to be, like, you know, kind of familiar but, like, with a twist on it. So that was kind of the vision of what I had. And then also, you know, working for other people like Ludo Lefebvre at Twomek, which was a, you know, michelin Mm star tasting menu restaurant. Uh, You know, that definitely gave me a lot of finesse in terms of how I'm able to cook and how I want things to look. And, you know, because... You know, we always say the phone eats first, you know, it's Shardless exactly. And so, you know, how things look on a plate is just as important as how they taste. Because, you know, Instagram and yeah. <laughs> Facebook and all that and, you know, food media sure are a big part of, you know, getting your word, getting the name out there, getting the culture out there, getting the, you know, the story of who you are through sometimes just looking at, you know, you look at a, our beet tostada and you're just like, wow, that looks very crazy looks like something from like a spaceship um (laughs) but yeah that's i think a lot of them influenced kind of my cooking style and then also too i mean jessica coslow she was someone i worked towards the end of my time there in la at squirrel and i think the way she formatted her menu i really loved and that's something i kind of took from her in that sense like i love that she had like you know staples and then a few dishes that would change up seasonally and then she would have some daily specials. So the way she kind of ran her little cafe, I really loved because they were hurt. Her cafe, you know, squirrel is very reminiscent. I feel like of Nexta in terms of like the scrappiness and how small the kitchen is. It's a tiny little kitchen in out there in Silver Lake and, you know, to see how they operate. It's, it's essentially not a, we kind of almost have, I feel like the same models, you know, we, we don't have table service. It's, it's first come first serve. And you order at the counter and then you get your food out. I really love that because it, it, kind of delineated from the standard restaurant model of like, you know, there's servers and if there's servers in that sense, you know, the servers are usually the ones taking home all the money, which is something we didn't want here at Nexa. We kind of wanted to break that mold and have it be an equal opportunity for everyone to be able to get in that tip pool. So, you know, I'm really, grateful and happy that you know our dishwasher who works her ass off like is able to get in that tip pool and she's just as important part of a role in our service as the person who's prepping or the line cook or whoever's Mm -hmm. running the food so I think seeing how she ran her business and you know everyone there was just you know very happy and you know it was a good team to work with and seeing how all that kind of came to fruition with everything that i had learned coming coming into this restaurant open nixta i know i knew i had like a good foundation of what i wanted to learn of what i wanted to you know teach others here and you know execute on a daily you know on a daily basis here
1: so you're talking about her model was in terms of the menu about, like, you know, established dishes and then rotation with the season. So what what are now, after a few years that you have that restaurant here, what are your signature dishes? Like the one that are really part of
0: what Nixta yeah. DNA is. So I hope you're going to see the duck. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> one million percent. I mean, the duck got <laughs> I love that one, yes. Yeah, that yeah. dish has become iconic to Nixta now. There's no way we will ever take off the duck because we will get everyone relief. That is our best seller by far. There's always every single day, the top seller of the day. And understandably so, you know, it's duck carnitas. It's a uh, duck thighs that we get. They're moulard duck legs that we get. We confie them with duck fat and then we treat the fat similar, season it with the same way you would like a Michoacan style carnitas So we put in Mexican cola, oranges, bay leaves, chilies, a bunch of aromatics in there. And then just we sear it off at first to get a little skin on the on the duck to crisp up and render out some of that fat. And then we just let it confit for about twelve to fifteen hours, low and slow. So and then- I mean,
1: what I love—it's—it looks like a very simple dish, but listen to you describing the different steps. Sure, it's not. And then now, do you remember back in the day when you created that dish? How those ideas, you know, came about?
0: Yeah. So when we were opening the restaurant, we, you know, a lot of purveyors started coming coming to the limelight figuring out that we were going to open a restaurant we had we had done a very good job of promoting the restaurant kind of we were just trying to hype it up we had we had the instagram probably a year before we opened and we're slowly promoting on the instagram we were doing a bunch of pop-ups with friends we were doing private dinners and all that so a lot of purveyors were interested in there were you know what we were going to do and I remember there was a purveyor that had sent us over some duck samples. They had sent us over whole duck. They had sent over breasts, thighs, wings. And we had done, we were getting ready to do a baby shower actually for someone. And at that point, I had tested the, the duck carnitas once before that, kind of. But I had, it wasn't really carnitas, it was more like crispy duck breast that I wanted to do like medium rare kind of and then after trying it like I don't know like the the chewiness of the duck with the skin and the and the breast wasn't I don't know it just didn't really have that carnitas feel or that richness so I remember we just had a ton of duck fat because they also sent that over and I was like well why don't we first do carnitas why don't you just season up the fat you know like you would carnitas traditionally and then you know, throw it in the oven for a few hours and we'll see what happens. We'll we'll see because, you know, we're doing these small dinners with people. You got first, first-hand reaction to see sure. yep. how it was and every single person that ate that duck carnitas taco that day came back for seconds and thirds and were like yo like we need more of these tacos okay um, so, so you knew you had a winner yeah, yeah. that was the one that we were like damn okay that we haven't gotten a reaction like that from any taco that we've had like that one was one that we were like
1: wow yeah, there's another dish that is kind of a
0: yeah signature. so and then and the other one too i would say is our our beef tartare mm-hmm. um The beet tartare is another thing that kind of started from we were catering someone's wedding, Um, a good friend of ours, who was doing a little backyard wedding in her house, and she wanted some options that were vegetarian, that were vegan. And I remember actually at Twomek, we had done a a beet tartare, but it was definitely more composed and was like this plated dish. But I remember just that idea of like, okay, beet tartare, like all right, but well, like how can we make this Mexican and not French? So, you know, we started playing around with some ideas. We had salsa matcha already at the time. That was something I knew I wanted to be on the menu. I just didn't know in what way, shape, or form. But I remember I roasted up a bunch of beets, chopped them really fine, and then I decided like let's just throw this salsa matcha in there. Like this will work, why not? I Had a bunch of cilantro shallots bunch of horseradish, kind of treated it almost similar to like what I wanted it to be, like a beef tartare and decided to bind it with a little bit of uh, cashew mayo to give it a little body and some fattiness. And then I remember decided to put it on a tostada because it just seemed like a perfect vehicle mm-hmm. for it, you know, a little beef tartare, put some avocado crema on the bottom and It just, it made sense. So I remember there was this moment at the party that I was like, yup, this is is it. This dish is gonna hit. And it was this big old burly Texan man. I remember this dude had on like the Texas hat with like the big belt buckle, (laughs) big belly. And I remember he walks by the table and takes a bite. He's like, man, that's some of the best beef I've ever had. I'm like. Oh, buddy, I was like, that's actually vegan. I was like, that's a beet tartare. And he was like, he had this moment where he was like, what, man, I don't like beets at all. I was like, well, you like those beets, don't you? He's like, I guess I like beets. He's like, I guess I've never had any beets make beets like way. this. And uh, yeah, that's the moment I think we knew. I was like, man, if we could fool a Texan like that, that, that he believed that this was, you know, meat, then I think we're doing something right. So, yeah, from that moment on, the beet tartar I knew it was going to be a staple at Nixta. And, yeah, I continued on with other dishes as well. The, you know, the tuna sostada is yep. another crowd favorite. Yep. The cauliflower, the roasted cauliflower, was, was not one that was initially on the menu, but I remember it was a seasonal when we opened. And the moment we took it off, we had tons of emails and texts and people reaching out on our inbox. They were like, bring back the cauliflower, we're like, bring it back. And we were like, oh, all right, like, oh, <laughs> bring it back. And it, it's a delicious dish. I love it. It's, you know, it's roasted cauliflower, romesco, there's pine nuts, yeah, romesco, yeah, cilantro, it. it's a, it's a really good, like vegetarian dish. And, you know, on our end, it's, you know, not too much I labor. Got, off in our fact, back. I and,
1: was lucky. I tasted those four dishes that you mentioned and this. If people haven't been to Nixtatic area yet, which I'm sure, in, if you live in Austin, you have been.
0: To, yeah, I yeah. hope.
1: If but you if haven't. you are not and you're living in Austin, you have to travel to Austin and 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 go to uh, Nixtatic area. So, so what's the the next step for for the the restaurants? And you were t- telling me that there's maybe some. Projects about you know the tortillas and
0: yeah so you know through you know winning the James Beard Award that that'll definitely set you up for you know a lot of doors that have opened like you say blue collar job with white collar opportunities mm-hmm. it's not me well all. All. <laughs> yes
1: it's Brad uh, Kilgore shout but out I, to Chef absolutely Brett. I love uh, that but uh, yeah
0: quotes. you know that fortunately has led us to be able to you know it obviously increases your business by. A lot. The numbers that we had done in 2021 compared to 22 were a whole different beast. We didn't think we, numbers we'd able to be able to see. So with that too, you know, we've been able to you get a lot of- You Oh yeah, oh, for great. sure. Okay. And to be able to, you know, it opens up a talent pool of people that, you know, want to work for you. Like we've had from that day on, I think, you know, we have not had a problem finding line cooks or anything in that matter. So- You know some future products that we definitely plan on getting into. We just are signed on the lease to a five thousand square foot uh, commissary kitchen that also happens to be right next door to Nixta. So it kind of landed on our lap and was just made sense financially and you know with the opportunity in front of us that we have, we definitely want to take advantage of it. So I think. Us getting into uh, consumer packaged goods is something that we want to get into. You know, we really believe that the tortillas that are on most shelves right now with corn tortillas are shit. And, you know, we really feel like there's a better market for tortillas that are nixtamalized and that are freshly made and that, you know, have some soul behind them. It's not just like this maseka good that, you know, is just... Being given to people, which I think, in my opinion, it's poison. It's must, you know, to see the work that a lot of people around the country are doing, like Jorge from Hacienda, you know, to seeing also too that other company that you were talking about, sure. Balo and Phoenix. So, you know, there's starting to be a conversation about Nixon tortillas. And I think, you know, the public wants a better tortilla on the plate at home. So, that's something that we definitely want to get into the sphere of that. Because for us, it's not something we're very familiar with. Like Restaurants are definitely my thing. So, yeah, to go into a whole new forefront is a whole new challenge. But it's something we're really excited to very do. Cool, I'm and looking forward to it. Yeah. You know? And then the other thing, as you... Have to, we spoke about. I was just getting back. I just got back from a trip in Iran, yeah. spent the past month there with my wife. Talk to um, us a little bit about this. So,
1: yeah, <laughs> because so I, I didn't know the context, you know, why you were going there. So, you, you know, yeah, so.
0: so you know, we decided to go to Iran. Obviously, to get also and to give you some insight onto getting into the country of Iran is no easy feat if you don't know anyone there or you're not married to anyone there. It, It's almost impossible for you to get in especially being an American because you know our governments aren't exactly you know the best with each other we haven't seen eye-to-eye since 78 for reasons you know that are beyond me but yeah so my wife and I started planning this trip almost eight because months this is ago her
1: heritage correct huh
0: this is her correct heritage. yeah my yeah. wife so my wife's parents are both from there they were born and raised in iran and they fled in in 78 after the revolution yeah. and exactly yeah. so after the shah yeah. lost power and the ayatollah came in yeah. they they left because they you there's know. a lot that
1: came to the u.s and there's a lot of other that came to france there was a lot of
0: right people. there i noticed yeah when i was in france that there is a, a
1: there's a big um, you know
0: community and also too they have a what's it called there a, a space there it's right by the eiffel tower nonetheless So with her, both of her parents having citizenship, it allowed her to be able to get her dual citizenship. So she's always had it and she used to go frequently every year as a kid. And then she took a break for like 10 years and didn't go until she was like 21 was the last time she was there. And it had been, this had been the longest she hadn't been. It had almost been like 13 years since she had gone. And for us... I think probably it was like last year for us that we kind of started throwing out the idea of maybe we would open a new restaurant, but like, what would it be? You know, what would the vibe be? You know, you start, you know, it takes a while to open a restaurant. It's not just something, especially if it's like something you care about and it's something that's like very near and dear to your heart. So I think Iranian food kind of made sense for us because especially in Austin, there's not a very diverse, you know, Restaurant scene with Iranian restaurants in it, and the, the two that are are pretty much the same in terms of menuscapes. It's always like kebabs and you know rice and all that and stews and some fresh breads. But you know, I think we definitely wanted to go outside of the box uh, of what a typical Iranian restaurant is. So, I think we decided to focus on uh, brunch. Uh, breakfast items of being you know the star of it because you know that is never ever highlighted in any restaurant menu i've seen at least in the country that is doing iranian breakfast so we decided, you know, so that's to the start, background of the trip. Yeah, that's, so the, that's the background. The and then we decided, all right, let's get the ball rolling on this. And it took about nine months to to get it all together, because it's you as an American citizen. To start off this process, you have to write the, the only communication you have with is the Pakistani embassy because there is no Iranian embassy here in the US and the Pakistani embassy I guess there's like a small little room inside of the Pakistani embassy where there's an Iranian consulate or consulate member that is from there I believe but anyways so I start off my paperwork with applying have to get you you get to get your picture fingerprints all that and then you send it off over there they approve whether you can take the next steps and then they mail you something back and they tell you okay you're good to go And then you do your full application, your full visa process, and then you mail it again to the Pakistani embassy, and then they mail it to the big guns out there in Iran, and then they really decide whether you're getting into the country or not. And some things that'll not allow you to get in the country. If you've ever worked for the military in the U.S., there's no way you're ever getting in. If you've ever had family that have like worked closely with the military, you're probably not getting in. They're very, very secretive. And very, They don't want a lot of people who worked for the government to get in there. So, yeah, that for them, for us, took about nine months and in between that time also a a little revolution kind of started three months ago the death of that girl that ended up passing away started a big movement that you know when we got there immediately i was kind of shocked because i saw half the women there weren't wearing a head covering and i'm like i read that on your posts and yeah um, i was very surprised because that's not the image that you know exactly so
1: at least that i mean maybe some things are bubbling up yeah no i think a
0: lot of you know from being there and the climate there you know i think people are pissed at the government you know they someone a girl essentially was murdered for not wearing her head covering loosely which is like from talking with sarah who had been there like 10 years ago 12 years ago she was like you know it was never this you know intense like i remember going to many places throughout the city and never being stopped once and like you know she would wear it very loosely like so for her when she got there she was even in kind of a shock too of being like whoa like No one like half these women here don't have anything on. Like their hair is just loose, and not at one point in time during the trip, Sarah, I would say eighty percent of the trip didn't have on any head covering at all because she just felt comfortable. Because no one else in whatever part of the country we went to, whether it was in Tehran, down in the south in Kesham Island, and all the way in the north to there wasn't a town where there where every single woman was like you know had a head covering on like no that wasn't the case at all so so what else surprised you the most in in, in your trip wow i mean the biggest thing that surprised me i think you know just seeing how welcoming people were i mean i think You know, you always hear, you always see these photos of Iran. I mean, I posted one as well. There's like this big Death to America poster that is an iconic kind of art piece there in the city, like right in the middle of downtown. So you think you're like, oh my God, like these guys hate Americans. Like I remember had a bunch of friends messaging me that day. Like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Like, I'm like, dude, like, no, like every single person that we spoke to that that knew that we told them we were very open, that we were from America, like opened us with open arms. Just the kindness and the generosity of people that you had met. I remember like for one instance, we were in the airport one day, we were leaving Keshem Island or Bandera, Bandera Arabas, which is like in the Southern Peninsula of uh, Iran. And I saw these dudes that were... Tall. like that wasn't something I had saw on the island the whole time like most of the dudes that were really short I remember these guys were all like over six foot five and I was like whoa like and I was like do you guys play basketball or something and they're like actually yeah we do <laughs> we're, we play on the professional basketball team in Tehran and I was like oh whoa crazy and I mean through having like you know a 10 to 15 minute conversation about basketball about the NBA one of the gentlemen that we were talking with on the team he was like hey you guys are gonna be passing through this town like you should stop at my parents house for lunch like it's on your way and we we're like what like you like now he's like no like please like i want my mom to because i he my mom makes really good bread you know i hear you guys are opening a brunch restaurant like i want you guys to try regional nice. bread cool. and you know like literally having a stranger that you had just met you know like at a with a fifteen-minute conversation to invite you into their into their home, their parents' home of all things for a meal, like that's just something you don't see here in America. And when it
1: comes to to food, so what
0: yeah, discovered? I mean, wow. I mean. From being there, it's, it's a untapped culinary, I feel like destination. Specifically, if you go to this town up north, it's a town called Resht. It's a UNESCO culinary heritage site. It's so within those means to be considered that you have to be growing a lot of your everything pretty much there in your country to, to be considered a UNESCO like culinary mm-hmm, heritage mm-hmm. site. So this area, Resht, I feel like if you know the means of being able to get there wasn't as hard i feel like every michelin star chef in the world would open a restaurant there cuz in terms of what grows there what that's so what's at your disposal it's like you know olive trees go there so you could go anywhere on the, along the roadside and get fresh freshly squeezed olive olive oil right at your disposal. Rice fields are right there. You can get fresh rice fields. There's like a jungle there where you can get tons of amazing fruits and vegetables. The Caspian Sea is right there. So you can have access to fresh sturgeon caviar. The fish markets there are incredible with like fish, some of the most awesome, you know, white, essentially it was like almost equivalent to like a white bass, but like, and tons of other fresh fish that are always there. Man, it's just like, It's a dream place, I feel like, for any chef to visit. Like, going in the markets there, like seeing the product that they had. And at the price point they had, it's like insane. Like, you could buy like fresh caviar there for like fresh sturgeon caviar for like 40 or 50 bucks, you know, and like quality that is incredible. So, you know a place like that you know you would never know about in your life unless you get to go there so i was anything just, weird that you have tasted oh yeah the weirdest thing i tasted i remember being in esfahan they are known for this dessert i forget the name of the dessert but it was a dish where we were like, yeah, just bring us your your most famous dessert because it was only two options and the <laughs> other one we had already eaten. And we get this big bowl of, it's just yellow, and it had uh, some barberries on top. And we we're like, oh, okay, maybe I taste like a little bit. And I was like, oh, it's like a sweet yogurt. So then I take a big spoonful and I'm like, what? There's something weird about this. <laughs> And then I take another spoonful and I'm like trying to decipher, like, what is this? And then we asked the guy, we asked our waiter, we're like, hey, what's inside of this? So like, it's yogurt, right? He's like, yeah, so it's a uh, yogurt. We put some turmeric in there, some saffron. And then we put lamb neck in there. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, we put some lamb neck. We put chunks of lamb neck in it, shredded throughout the dish. And I was like... <sighs> oh no I was like that's oh that's what it is All oh wow so it was this very like that rich was combination, yeah, yeah very rich savory gamey dairy. kind of and dairy like it was not pleasant that was the only dish I can say that I, like me and me and Sarah both looked at each other we were like yeah, so there won't don't, be now. Yeah, I like, know, no, this ain't it. <laughs> but <laughs> the rest of the meal uh, at that restaurant actually was really great. They had this the best lamb ribs I'd ever had. They call them shishlik there. So are, what
1: are you going to... I'm not asking you to go into the details, but what are like the things that you feel that you are going to take inspiration from?
0: I think the biggest thing is, you know, the breads, you know, the breads in Iran are very unique to any really other parts of the world I've been to. Bread culture there in Iran is like a way of life. It, it, you know, bread is subsidized for a lot of people there. So when you go there, you're only paying maybe like a penny or two pennies for this fresh bread that is made like on the spot, like no one there eats day-old bread like bread is so affordable and there's so many local spots that you can get like fresh bread from so now as a french person and bread being very specific in
1: my country sure so totally <laughs> what kind of bread are we talking about that that is it like more like the flatbread type is it's about like the mm-hmm you know, Levin type with, you no know, baguettes and so on, or raised there's, bread? There's, what, a, what there's a
0: little mixture of both. So there is some flatbreads. One of them in particular, it's called Noon Sangak. Sangak is essentially, it's like a, a fermented bread, day-old, day-old ferment, but it's a really, really high hydrated dough, like super hydrated. But they essentially put it on this, they have these big, big, almost like, have you ever seen like a pool cleaner? Like when you're cleaning a pool, sure, like yeah. those long yeah. rods like that, all the bread places there have like shifted these bread, these pool rods and they put like these long pizza, like square, yeah. like pl- like rounds on them or whatever they're called. But they essentially, the bread maker will take this dough and like ball it out onto it. But with, before he does, he puts adds a lot of water to the to the pizza sheet. And then as he's shaping out the dough, he gets like a ton of water on his hands and starts wow. shaping the dough. So he puts these little round holes in it all throughout the dough. And then he seasons it. Each place kind of seasoned it to their own liking. But typically what you would see would be like sesame, sesame seeds theme, yeah. or like these dried herbs. And then the very unique thing about it is when they're cooking it, they're cooking it on these real, these big like furnaces that are lined with pebbles like loose rocks everywhere like it's it's this crazy contraption i've never seen in my life but essentially imagine like a a big i don't know a room a room, a little mini room that's just filled with rocks that are going up like a little mini hill, and they would throw the the bread on there and then pull it, and then it stretches out the bread, and then the bread cooks on these rocks. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's wild. It's fascinating to see. And afterwards, they take out take out the bread once it's like nice and caramelized, and it's a quick process. Like I think maybe forty five seconds for this bread to cook from start to finish. Like I remember they tempt the bread and the oven the oven is over 1200 degrees like this thing is ripping and the thing never turns off so these things oh, wow this oven is just always oh, that's in rotation. amazing experience so afterwards like yeah you have this long piece of bread that is like taller than me and i'm six feet tall i mind you and this yeah. bread is just as long as me and yeah you get your daily bread like that. And the funny thing is though too, because they they'll hang it to cool down. But then afterwards they like bring it over to the customer and where the customers pick up the bread, there's these big boxes that have like this screen, this screen wire mesh on it. But the mesh is made to be so that you can shake off all the excess rocks um that are in are inside oh, of the bread like yeah because some of the bread it kind of sticks to the rock wow. some of the rocks kind of stick to the bread sure. so as you're buying your bread wow. you buy it by the by the kilo <laughs> yes. and yeah without just, the rocks yeah yes. without the rocks. so that's why everyone's taking out the rocks. so it's cheaper so you're not paying for the rock weight but yeah that was one of them in and how particular do they eat
1: the bread there that's be, they use it as like in other countries, like in
0: you know, in the part of the world
1: where you have like misses and you know different dishes, and then you for use sure. the
0: bread for that, or not sandwiches, correct? Or typically not sandwiches, but it's not to say that there isn't, especially with that bread like noon sangak. Like typically, like the most typical way I saw it eaten was just like having some cream cheese or some kind of a cream yeah. jams. There are huge; everyone there eats a lot of. There's so many great amazing produce there. Mulberries there are in abundance. So mulberry jam was typically a jam that I saw a lot of with some cream cheese, some butter, like that was like the most quick and easy way. But there's also to like a typical, like I would say like the typical Iranian breakfast is usually like feta cheese or like a, a nice salted cheese, cucumbers, tomatoes, fresh herbs, an egg a poached or fried, whatever it may be, and then some of this fresh bread. And that's usually like a s- typical like Iranian breakfast. Okay, so, so that's going to be kind of a inspiration for you guys. Oh, yeah, like that one is going to be... Because
1: I don't think you are going to build like a room with the pebbles. Exactly,
0: and... no, like there's no way on earth the <laughs> oh, health well, department I would ever approve that. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would love to bring that to Austin, but uh, health code probably will not allow us to build anything like that.
1: Very cool. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on your trip. That's that's amazing. And I I love traveling and I love diff, you know, discover different culture, discovering different cultures. So, I have a lot of questions, but yeah, for that's sure. for another time. <laughs> because we have been talking about an hour, my friend. Already. Oh, wow. I have one question for you back to Nixta, because a lot of people that listen to the podcast feel that we talk a lot about creativity and inspiration, but you know, there is always the aspect when you have a restaurant of the execution, you know, uh, part. So in creating that menu, you know, and the new item on the menu, of course, you think about the idea, but you are thinking about the execution, the the size of the kitchen, the number of stations that you have, the you know, the number of people and so on. So as you have a kitchen here that is only, I think, like 100 square feet, you know, something like this, how do you balance that creativity aspect and the execution of the idea? How how important is it and how does it influence, you know, what you put on the menu?
0: Totally. Yeah. You know, with having a, a very limited kitchen, you know, for us, we definitely stray away from doing fried items because I don't have a deep fryer in the kitchen. But, you know, when you're creating the dishes, like you say, there always has to be this mindset of, okay, I know I can do something that's very technically sound and crazy, but like... Do I know the rest of my staff can be able to execute that same kind of vision and consistently for, you know, days on end or years on end, however it may be, whatever this dish, the life of this dish may be. So that's something I'm very conscious about because, you know, I don't want to do a dish that, you know, if sure, I could pick up the dish and do every single component of it. But like, you know, what's what's the fun in that? And What's also to for my staff to what are they learning if, if I'm just doing all of it? So I think I'm very intentional about when we're creating dishes to have it be like the pickups need to be, especially at Nixta, because we are a Taqueria and it's very small. You know, they need to be something that can be almost reheated and kind of executed quickly. And the biggest thing I think we focus on is when we're garnishing our dishes, because, you know, the garnishing and all that can really, you know, take a dish that looks okay to like make it something that's completely stunning so i think you know we rely heavy on our prep cooks to at least give us the foundational things of everything from you know the tortilla the masa to giving us the sauces and all that and then the line cooks kind of since the line cooks i feel like are a little more technically sound in terms of like you know execution of things that they are able to kind of bring, take that next step and kind of give the finesse to the dishes that we're making. So, yeah, when creating dishes, I'm always, you know, thinking about those two things and speaking with our sous chef as well, Sara, she kind of will, you know, delegate things and knows who, you know, who's stronger in like creating or, you know, doing certain tasks. So I think, you know, all of it kind of plays place together when when you're creating when we're creating dishes here specifically you know what what was something we can do with the with the limitations of the kitchens that we have and you know what's something that's not going to like sink a whole service you know because there's like 40 components on it and like it's crazy pickup like you know that's something we definitely like to stray away from but you know uh, there's moments where we do get to do have fun stuff like that you know from doing our sholo vinos and then also we're getting ready to actually create a tasting menu oh Um, we're actually starting that in the next few months in the spring our front patio we're going to be doing a small little 12 seat tasting menus that'll be on Fridays and Saturdays to start. And then we'll kind of see what kind of steam we get with it and see if we expand it to other days. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Okay. So let's, let's finish the the conversation with a rapid fire questions. So you and I, we are going on a tasting tour in Austin. What are like the five spots that you're going to take me to?
0: Ooh, okay. Five spots we're going to. So we'll start off by doing a tour of the Taco Mafia. And
1: that's true. Once we talk about uh, it. Yeah. You
0: said, oh, next time you are in Austin, we'll do the taco tour.
1: Yeah. The Taco
0: Mafia tour. I'm just considering (laughs) it all as just one because it's one taco at each of our spots. So uh, you start off with Jerry over at getting some BDA taco. Bidia Queso Taco, I think, is a good way to start. And then going over to Jose and getting a Discada Taco at Discada, Hopping over and getting a Suadero Taco with Beto over at Cuantos Tacos. And then getting one taco here at nixta the duck carnitas to kind of round it all out and in my opinion if you were to eat those four tacos those bite for bite for bite is i think some of the best tacos you'll have in the country in my opinion but yeah taco mafia tour and then going to este for lunch yep. este right now is my like favorite last spot night. yeah what'd you get did you get those camarones the camarones ricos what'd you eat I just got like a ceviche and a fish taco. Oh, fish tacos also too. Incredible. But yeah, Este is definitely, I feel like just the lighting in there, the vibes in there, the wine list with Celia crushing it is a really incredible spot to get some lunch. And then dinner time, Kanje. Kanje right now, I... They were nominated this year for Best yep. Chef in Texas. I really feel like he's going to bring that home. So shout-outs to Tavel and Kevin and the team out there in Harvard making some amazing Guyanese food. That's a food that, for myself, prior to them opening that restaurant, I knew nothing about. Yep. I didn't even know where the country of Guyana was. So it's really amazing to see Tavel putting this story out there and putting that food on the forefront and the map of, you know, what food I had a recording
1: with him uh, on Sunday.
0: Yeah, nice. And then the other spot right now, I really love going to recently, KG Barbecue. So KG Barbecue, Kareem, he was nominated for Best Chef in Texas also. He's doing Egyptian Barbecue, which is... wow. Very different than anything I've ever had. He does this lamb belly that's glazed with this pomegranate barbecue sauce Oof. that is oh, incredible. Oh so yeah, uh, uh, a nice day there I think would be. What's the uh, name of it you said? KG barbecue, KG barbecue, okay. Yeah. KG barbecue and then ending rounding out the day for, I mean, at birdies, that would be my other spot. Um, Bertie's for me, I live in the neighborhood. Um, me and Sarah are regulars a lot. Um, we really love what Tracy and our are doing with food. Tracy has a very just delicate touch to food and it, you know, it really, I love the way she cooks with seasons and the menu there is very French Italian influence. And the wine list there is, I think in my opinion, one of the best wine lists for the price too in on Austin. So Yeah that would be my perfect day of eating in Austin so or that's a perfect day. Yes. Yeah. Or a couple few days. Yeah. A few days. Yes, yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Beside taco. So what's your uh, favorite guilty pleasure food?
0: Ooh, uh favorite guilty pleasure food. I really love just like American Chinese food. Like just kind of like dirty, greasy, <laughs> like, like Chinese food. Like, I don't know. Like, there's something I really love about like fried rice, uh, or fried what? rice, or like a stir fry, like orange chicken. Like, I don't know, I really love just kind wow. of nostalgic kind of stuff like that. Like, I don't mind going to a Panda Express, you know, every couple <laughs> years or so, like to get my orange barbecue or like a General Sow's or uh, orange chicken fix. I really think they do it better than anyone else. But, Very good. Yeah. Wow, interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Three cookbooks that inspire you the most.
0: Man, I really loved the Turkey and the Wolf cookbook. Yeah, um, yeah. I love just how brash, and you know, very unapologetic Mason is. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know, that fried bologna sandwich, but the collard green sandwich—that one for me is actually, I think, really the sleeper. Good. I think that's the best uh, vegetarian sandwich yeah. I think on the on the menu. But yeah, I loved that cookbook. For myself, I mean, the French Laundry cookbook is yeah, always it's your generation. Yeah. For sure. Like getting to eat there this yeah. year, like finally eating like the oysters and pearls, like <laughs> it brought me to tears. I was like, "Damn, like to be, you know, he's had this dish on since early '96, '95 and like it's almost 20 plus years later and like the at the level that they're executing this that long and sure. That's, you know, that's goals for any that's, chef. It's okay about um, consistency. Yeah. For sure. You know, <laughs> at that
1: level. Yeah.
0: And then, newest cookbook that about to dive into uh, the Winsome Cookbook. Oh. Chef Trigg yeah. in Brooklyn yeah. just released that cookbook. I didn't and, see it. Huh. Uh, yeah. it I, I, I just saw he released it on, on, at least on his Instagram. I don't know if he's released it publicly yet, but yeah, just like a really, I love this. The kind of take that they do on taiwanese food it sure like this taiwanese kind of american yeah. kind of spin that they do and i don't the like crazy great yeah oh yeah and for the, sure the
1: restaurant too but
0: yeah but yeah i just cool. really love the energy that chef trig and his team put out and i think you know for ourselves that's kind of goals and to hopefully you know one day we can have our own little cookbook and express exactly. ourselves in that way too very good biggest pet peeves in the kitchen Ooh, biggest pet peeves is not wiping down your station like i don't know i for me like when when working like cleanliness is like so key and yeah because i feel like i remember one thing one of my chefs told me was like if your station's dirty your mind's dirty and that means you're not gonna have a clean service so like if you clean everything <laughs> up you clear out your mind and cleanliness you know just having that clean station just Gives you this like reassurance as you're going through service of like, ah, oh, okay, like it's a fresh start. Let's keep it moving, you know? So yeah, but not wiping down your stations a big part Good. of you. Last question for you.
1: What like beside the classics, sauces, condiments and so on. So ketchup, mayo, mustard and so on. What are like the spicy sauces, dressing, condiment that you like to have on hand at home?
0: At home for me, always it's, been more recently, but the past few years, truff, truffle hot sauce, the truff hot sauce. I love, love, love that stuff. Shout out to Sean Buscemi. He is the mastermind behind it and all his projects are really incredible too. But yeah, truffle hot sauce. I put that on everything, like love it on pizza love it on some eggs and everything else between and make some really good aiolis too uh-huh, uh-huh. so yeah really love truffle hot sauce and then chili crunch chili crunch from different brands of whoever it may be i'm always trying new ones but i don't know i just really love the texture that chili crunch adds and then especially if it has szechuan in it it gives you that tingle and oh, gives yeah, you like it. a whole yeah. you know different kind of realm of flavor so, so those matcha as well or? yeah it's also much i eat it here a lot at the restaurant so i yeah you know i i can you i can eat, have it yeah. at home too but you know i like kind of experiencing especially if i'm at home different different kind of chilies to kind of you know get my palate kind of moving and grooving by the way just like candid question
1: and as well ignorance is if there's any hot sauce in iran
0: no so funny thing about that in iran they are not candied to spicy cooking i remember being with her aunt and like her cousins one day and i was like i was eating something and they're like oh hey like do you want something do you want something spicy for it and i'm like oh yeah sure like what do you guys got so they bring over black pepper and i'm like Like, do you have anything spicier? And, like, oh no, this is super spicy. And I was like, oh God. (laughs) I was like, what do you mean for a long month? But yeah, black pepper for them is considered spicy. They do, they have a very, very, very mellow palate. I feel like very similar to French. French, You know, French people don't really love spicy food Uh, either. No. Um, I do, but. Yeah, no, not a lot. There's not a lot of them. No, 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 for sure. No, No, no. no. My family is like, very, like, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> Every time, you know. but yeah there are and it's not to say there aren't i remember going to markets and the like they do have like these green skinny chilies that are like pretty much like bell peppers but they do have like these fatter red ones uh-huh. that were like very similar to kind of like a jalapeno but not they're like long kind of shaped like i don't know like a very long teardrop but yeah those were had a little a little bit of spice but i mean no, nothing there is gonna blow your palate yeah. out in terms of and spice, and it's more like blossoms and everything in desserts, correct?
1: And as well, like rose and oh,
0: that, you know, yeah. That type I mean, rose water, pistachios, pistach- cardamom, yeah, yeah. turmeric, yeah, yeah, yeah. saffron are yeah, very yeah. flavor profiles that are very yeah. prominent in the flavor profiles of okay. like Iranian cooking for desserts, at least. Very good, Chef. Thank you so much for being a
1: guest on the show. I really uh, enjoyed the conversation.
0: Yeah, for sure. It was great talking with you. Thank you again for all this. Uh, You're welcome.
1: That brings us to the end of another fascinating episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. I want to thank Chef Edgar Rico for sharing his journey, insights, and experiences with us. We have traveled through Edgar's life from the childhood memories to the present success of Nixta Tequeria, gaining an understanding of his love for Mexican cuisine and his innovative approach in the kitchen. We explored his creative process, how he stayed inspired, and got a sneak peek into how his recent travels to Iran will influence his future culinary creations. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I look forward to bringing you more insights and inspirational stories from the culinary space in the next episode. Until then, keep exploring the unknown flavors that makes this world a delicious place to live. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Flavors Unknown. And subscribe to our newsletter on our website, flavorsunknown.com. And until then, keep in mind that the people who like to eat are always the best people.
0: Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode,
1: give us a follow on Instagram at Flavors Unknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.